1: Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black Protest, and the New Century in Composition Literacy Studies is the book I'll be discussing today with its author, Carmen Canard, who is a professor of English at John Jay College of CUNY. Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, host of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Please, listen into to this interview with Carmen Cunard.
0: Hi, Carmen. Hi, Sean. Today we are speaking with Carmen Cunard, who has written a provocative new study in composition and literacy studies entitled Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black Protest, and the New Century in Composition Literacy Studies. It's published by the State University of New York 2013 the State University of New York Press 2013. We're happy to have Carmen Kennard to join us on new books in African-American studies. Carmen, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yes, sure. And uh, first, I want to start by thanking you, Bashar, for inviting me to um, participate in in this book talk. So this is wonderful. Um, So I'll I'll say a little bit about myself. I am I live in Brooklyn right now. Um I often pretend like I'm from Brooklyn, but I'm actually not. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, raised by a very large working class family that um that had recently migrated from Alabama to Toledo, Ohio and that becomes I'm saying some like some of this autobiographical information will become part of what I talk about in terms of of the book also. So I also I after My stint in Toledo, Ohio, I did my undergraduate degree at Stanford University where I met Sylvia Winner and got to study with her, take classes with her. And you you often hear people talk about their mentors as kind of saving their life. Well, Sylvia Winner is someone who I look at as having saved my mind. Um, And when I'm thinking through stuff or stuck on something or, or just need some motivation, she's kind of, she's who I go to in terms of her lessons, her work. And what she's what she's come to represent. So the other thing, the reason why that's also, like I said, also part of me. Because I start, I did my undergraduate um, years at two significant bookings. So when I start, I started my undergraduate years um, right after my freshman. So like my freshman seminar, my freshman orientation came in at the heels of a spring protest led by black students against one of the largest protests at that time in, in eighty nine, led by black college students, um, against what was then called Western civilization, the mm-hmm. required Western civilization classes that all students had to take. And so I came into college, now I came to college, I was pre made. I didn't want to hear anything about literature or history or anything. I was there to make money. And so then you know, there were all these posters from the Black Student Union reminding people what they had gone through with signs like, am I still the Invisible Man? I thought these people were crazy. i never heard of Invisible Man. I had <laughs> never read it, and I was trying to get paid. I was trying to be a surgeon and get paid, so y'all can be invisible if you want to. I'm going to do this over here. Um, that was really, <laughs> so, so that was the first, that was, kind of, that was the book end. Of, I mean, like I said, the first part, and then when I toward my end of my junior year going into my senior year was the eruptions that you saw in major U.S. cities when the police officers who beat Rodney King were quitting. Mm. So, that, so my undergraduate degree is literally sandwiched between those, those two moments. Um, and, and one of the, the, the things that I remember most clearly and probably, like I said, because I was pre-med, I hadn't really seen I didn't really see any other way to make money, um, and get, and sort of kind of get out the hood. At least that's how I thought about it at the time. So, and I just remember in my fir- my freshman year, um, you know, this is like I said, this is '89. Toni Morrison has just won. What, at this point that was what '88? She won the she won the in '88, so she had just really won. Um, and so we have these white professors who are imagining themselves reinventing Western Civ, and so they decide they're going to teach Beloved, but they can't do anything with it, so they bring in Barbara Christian, the late great Barbara Christian mm-hmm. to did this lecture to us. Um, and that moment, I can literally still see her standing there, um, and like on a class where I thought I would be vocal, I just had nothing to say. It was the way, and she was getting in. So, like, you would have these kind of very rich, elite, white students posturing and asking stupid questions, and she would let you know that you were rich, elite, and white and posturing and asking stupid questions, and get get into Beloved and deal with Beloved in ways that, like, the faculty just couldn't do. Um, And so that was, it was this moment seeing her and seeing this kind of other possibility of what black life could be or even black work um, was this kind of turning point. And just to enter, and, and even just to like know that it was, you know, really your students, your peers who had, some of them literally had been jailed just a year before so that you could sit in this chair and read Beloved, mm-hmm. even though he had just gotten the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so this was like, this, these are these kind of, you know, and obviously at, at this point I was also, um, like like I said, I was heavy pre-med, so I would take an advanced calculus, organic chemistry. Um, and at that moment, what I remember about those classes in that moment is I, in order to coax myself to study for that stuff, I would, I would reward myself for every hour of study by reading Angela Davis' Women Raising Class.
0: Hmm.
2: And at that point, I realized, well, maybe this isn't the major for me. And um, so that kind of turned... I didn't know what I was going to do instead, but I knew I didn't have to do this kind of bourgeois professionalism, let me just get mine mm-hmm. kind of thing that um and that really the university cat was really sponsoring. Um and so so that becomes after so I decide after I graduate and I decide to join Teach for America. Um this is when Teach for America was still in its early days. Mhm. I had all kinds of questions about this as a missionary project, all kinds of things, and I joined it anywhere else. And I did my student teaching in an elementary school in South Central Los Angeles, and then I got um, I got assigned to the Bronx to teach in the Bronx um, at, at that point. At, well, at that point, it's still now the Bronx is the poorest congressional district in terms of schooling, so that's where I was placed. And from that point, I never left New York after that. I fell in love with Black and Latino youth in New York, and have feel like I have been in a kind of battleground for their education ever since. And that's really a roundabout way how I got there. I wouldn't, I didn't imagine sitting in that seat, mesmerized by Barbara Christian, that this is where that would take me. Wow. But But um, that's pretty much how I got from that to here.
0: Usually, the next question that I ask um, authors is to tell me how you came to write this book. But I want to ask you a slightly different question, if I might. I want to ask you about your grandmother. Because in the uh, introduction, you end with a very uh, provocative uh, critique that your grandmother used to utter that's also the title of your introduction. And she would say that someone um, would be running with the rabbits but hunting with the dogs. (laughs) if they were trying to play two ends, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So can you tell me how you came to write this book and begin with this um, statement, this critique um, that you adopted from your grandmother and how it applies to your topic?
2: So that that expression, because this book is is basically um, like 10 revisions more onto my dissertation, maybe hundred revisions, who knows how many revisions passed the dissertation, but um, this started as a dissertation project, so my dissertation is actually called "Running with the rabbits but Hunting with the dogs
0: ah. um,
2: and and so when and at at that point, um, the purpose was and that was going to be too long for a title but that's really the, the the main the main thing there, and I was really trying to push and and say. And it's just part of how I think about teaching that this, this expression versus just this simple expression, what seems like a seemingly simple expression, is actually quite complicated. It's not translatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about, it's, it says specific things about race and racism when she's using it in those contexts. And it is as theoretically rigorous as anything y'all are up in this mm-hmm. Um And so that was really the kind of stance. That I was was having with it, and so that, that was that was part of it. That was kind of one. Um, I think more. I think, I think I don't know that I was specifically trying to be subversive, um, but 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 certainly I was resisted to this notion that this was this thing, that I somehow must leave this language at the door when I come into the classroom because this language is also thinking.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that that was part of it. And then the, the other thing is like. You know, being in, um, in graduate school, you know, I will be assigned these texts that will be marked as progressive, that will be marked as radical, even, that will be marked as offering some kind of, you know, powerful solutions to educational equality for black and Latino students. And, and they would be paternalistic. They will be racist to me. Um, They'll be so incredibly problematic. And so it was like, this is running with the rabbits but hunting with the dogs. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Or, um, what I mean, what I see a lot of academics doing is running with the rabbits but hunting with the dogs. So I thought this is an incredibly useful heuristic to understand scholarly production that happens, um, that is. Supposedly helping Black and Latino, mm-hmm.
0: um,
2: and and the reasons why I don't trust a, a great deal of it, um, and so so it was kind of twofold. Like I saw, I saw her. It was the first time I was beginning to understand that expression, and which is why it kept coming to me. And I was really um, resentful of a suggestion that this language um, wasn't relevant. Or wasn't um, wasn't pertinent to my studies. It mm-hmm. wouldn't help me.
0: And a little later on, we're going to uh, ask you to read from the book for us. But I wanted to um, share with the readers the one of the sentences in which you use that expression to really get at uh, part of what this book is trying to do. Uh, in the introduction, you write that American schools and universities, through their scholarship and instructional designs have often upheld a racial status quo alongside a rhetoric of dismantling it. These were not the workings of contradictory and confused individuals merely locked within their space and time. My grandmother understood that such contradictions happen inside of a totemic system. So what's interesting to me um, about that is... uh, what I see running uh, uh, a theme running through this book is calling out uh, these instructional designs, even some of the scholarship that upholds this racial status quo. At the same time, that this <laughs> that this up upholding is uh, couched in a rhetoric of dismantling or doing something different. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, oh,
2: and I think in terms of, you know, thinking of, kind of educational research, or particularly, and I don't just mean educational research, but educational research is this kind of, or um, how, at least how I get trained to, I was trained to think of this as kind of, in a, this applied social science, and I'm really trying to think, look at um, how you can't, you know, that we think that we can resolve social inequalities we can find solutions to social inequalities via the same kind of ideological lens that created the problem in the first place, and how incredibly difficult it is to break from it um and so you know and and just when too and like reading uh, reading this kind of educational history in, in, in my grad program um, and it it was just kind of it felt like one trek it felt like I was trekking through um decades of apology and that was really that was really that, that was really it like so so you know i think like like in the book i talk about somebody like killing Gast, who you know is who's really paternalistic against black people but didn't think they should die the way his contemporaries did and so you know you get into these grad programs and people talk about Tillinghast like he was somehow you know just kind of radical thinker modern for his age like no not really <laughs> um, and so you get kind of you get spun this. It was constantly being spun this. way you know you have to understand. You have to understand the time he was in, and you know. And so like, and of course, understanding the time that you're in only happens through the lens of racist whiteness. But we can't talk about well, well, well Why don't we look at something from Du Bois and see how he pushed back? Right. And then let's compare. Then let's compare these people. But it was never, so it was just kind of like this trek through apologies. But then it's just, it becomes kind of, it, in those cases, like something like killing gas, that kind of moment, like this 1884, that moment, it becomes very obvious to us to look at this now and to see that, yeah, he was pushing his contemporaries, but he was maintaining white supremacy at the same time. Like that's really easy for us to see now when we look back at those, at, at, at that particular moment. Um or even if you look back to Armstrong and the kind of first articulations of the H T M H T M model and, and, and this kind of thing where, you know, those students are making mittens. Um, you know, this kind of should it be liberal arts, should it be, you know, should it be like a technical school would be liberal arts? That wasn't an argument. They're making mittens. hmm This is like some chain gang stuff. Mm-hmm. And so so we can you know, we can look back at that now and see, um how compromised that was, that it couldn't fully break from, you know, this kind of racist ideological mold at the moment. Um, but the, so the, the, the challenge then is to look at ourselves now and see the kind of tilling gas that we have now or in what ways are we kind of just in, in or just saying, well, this is, I'm just being a realist and I'm just going, because, you know, this is a favorite kind of argument, I'm just being realistic. I'm just going to talk about the way things are. You know I'm just you know i'm I'm going to work within the system as it is, I'm like well, I don't know what that means <laughs> um uh, you know are, are we you know are we' talking about trayvon Martin here, so it's because it's that's you know that's the system as it is. are you talking about promoting that or letting that keep letting that keep going um or just we, uh, is the solution just to tell people not to wear hood um so it's... it's it's that kind of thinking that, but you can't often see it in your own historical moment when you're still locked within your paradigm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but what I'm suggesting is, um, you know, that's, what I, that's I, like, I like my grandmother's expression because she's saying that she can see when you're locked within your paradigm.
0: Right, right. And you you were very you start writing from the beginning of this book about a concern that you have about the education of Black and Latino youths. Um, in particular, education for youth overall, but but those demographics in particular, because when you were teaching high school, um, these students, some of your students had um, particular ideas about what college life was going to um, bring to them, the kind of value that it might um, add to their intellectual uh, and personal lives. And then you began, Became a college instructor and saw that some of the uh, things that you witnessed in high school, um, negative things uh, in, 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 in the students' education, were also extended into the into college. So, what is the what What do you see as the pervasive problems um, for the education of Black and Latino youths? Ooh,
2: um. I guess because I guess at root um, of this that this is this isn't a system that's designed for them or that has them in mind. I look that sounds like um, you know I guess it's almost like 1980s Audrey Audre Lorde, right? In terms of, and some people will think that that's kind of old school or some kind of throwback to the sixties. But you, you can't. The the more that we look at the numbers particularly what's happened to working class and working poor black and Latino students. And you can't just, you, I mean, unless you're just kind of like the new coming of the KKK, you can't see that there's something wrong with these students. You can't just kind of say there's something wrong with these communities. And I think that there There's some people who think that. But at at some point, like, you know, mostly what we do is we kind of offer these kind of band-aid solutions, but not kind of unthinking Unthinking the whole thing, and, and I realize that that it, it, that's not easy work, and I don't think it's work that people really take up, and and that was that that's really that kind of grounding lesson that I learned as a as a high school teacher because um, and like you know because I I became a teacher at the high at high school level I became a teacher um, I didn't become a teacher you know, um, as a compositionist, My first time in, in the classroom wasn't as a competitionist, was as a high school teacher. So I came to the field with that. So I guess uh, I think the, one of the best ways I could I think to answer that question was like, was an example of from back when I was, like teaching high school and what, what I, what I, what I mean and how I see that in, in terms of, really in terms of like college writing particularly. Um, so when I started teaching high, this was a brand new high school. Um, and that I, that I started teaching at and so basically what what happened in the Bronx at that time. so this was 94 1994 um, there's, there's there was a high school in the Bronx called Monroe High School and Monroe High School had 5000 students um, more, maybe more like six thousand. They took in fifteen hundred freshmen every year. so you have to, like like high schools in New York at least at that moment, were mammoths. They were, they're really more like campuses. They're talking 6,000 high school kids. So they, they're taking in 1,500 freshmen every year. And at host, this is a, a landslide year, they graduate 100, students, 100 seniors every year.
1: No. Mostly
2: girls. 100. And now, and like if you get a graduation class of 99, you were lucky. Because this would get reported in the New York Times every year. Wow. They, and, and yet, and so, like, and somehow the way the numbers went, they would still be reporting, like, 50% graduation rate or 40% graduation rate because, you know, they lost some of those students in the system or something. I couldn't ever understand how they came up with their graduation rates when they only when they never had 100 students graduating. So what the city and the state do is shut this school down. Um, so they shut they shut Monroe down. And the way that this, the way that it works is, so Monroe High School became six small schools. And what happens is, in, instead of a, the freshman class, the sort of the, the entering freshman in 1994, instead of them going to Monroe, they have to choose one of these six small schools. And each of those six small schools only has freshmen. The kind of standard kind of phase out model. And then you add on a new. A new class every year until you have finally have a ninth and twelfth grade. But your first year, you only have ninth grade. The second year, you have ninth and tenth grade, and you know. And then they let Monroe fade out. So on um, what I remember was on the first day of school. Now that this new high school and and the new high school that was modeled after Central Park East under Debbie Meyer it had been a successful
0: mm-hmm. alternative
2: high school experience. Mm-hmm. So on the first day of school. um, we had like five students. And so my principal made some phone calls. So, you know, this is before the days of text messaging, any of that, or cell phones, any of this. So she uh, she makes a phone makes a couple phone calls and she finds out that um, basically all the kids are trying to go to Monroe. Um, they're they're at Monroe with their parents. And so she asks me she puts me in a cab and asks me to go to Monroe and recruit because we need, you know, we need to fill our number for our freshman class. Um, as it ends up, so my driver was um, a gentleman who had a daughter who was trying to go to Monroe, didn't understand what was going on. He's a Dominican man. He was just bringing his daughter from the Dominican Republic to go to high school here, and no, and he didn't understand any of what they were trying to tell him. So on the way there, I explained to him what was going on. And then he ended up, after he dropped me off, and he, well, the second thing he did was he enrolled his daughter at the school. And, but before that, he kind of, he walked me to like this huge great lawn. And like, so there was a kind of auditorium where the students, well, it's getting kind of long. But anyway, there's a, there's an auditorium where the students are supposed to sign, you know, sign up for their school. I never made it to the auditorium because the parents just like swarmed me, like hundreds of them and wanting to know what was going on. So you had, like, you're, you're talking hundreds of parents just on this lawn trying to figure out what's going on, because somehow they didn't get the message that Monroe High School was, not, was no longer in existence. Mm. Um, and so, again, like, you can't say, so like, again, this is, this is 1,500 freshmen are supposed to show up this day. So you can't say that kind of 1,500 parents, 1,500 families are just stupid. I go, and it clearly, they understand. Clearly, they care about their children because of the way. Like I never, like I said, you know. And this is this is that autumn sun. So I'm just standing in this blazing hot heat. And then finally, um, at the after a couple hours of that, the um, the parent who I was telling about the father, he comes back and, and picks me up and takes me back to the school after I've been pretty much standing there all day and, and recruiting. And what I just remember that day because. I remember I I had on. I even remember what I was wearing because I was trying my best to look like an adult. I was about twenty two, twenty three, and I looked like I was sixteen. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing here trying to convince these parents that um, their children will be okay, and that I have their I have their best in mind. Um, and so, like, like I'm, you know, and like I said, I'm like standing there trying to trying to, to convince them of this. And so now, what? Now, what happens, like we know, we know what Monroe looked like. We know what that system of education looked like, and we know it didn't work because not even, a, not even 100 students were graduating every year. So then we have these six small schools. And at this point, this is before No Child Left Behind. This is before all of these kind of draconian testing and things like this. So the curriculum is really wide open. So, for instance, in my first year, um, the books, um, we could go – As long as we could get a bookstore to go have a vending license with the Board of Education, it was fine. So, like, I ordered my books from all black bookstores and all Latino bookstores in the area in in that first year. Mm -hmm. It's like we could, you know, like, we could reimagine, you know, the door was wide open. We didn't have any, uh, we we had a portfolio system that we could design any kind of way we wanted. But, like, um, we could really redesign the nature of schooling, and we couldn't do it. And, like, as each year went on, um, it just reverted back to that old traditional model. Right. that we knew wasn't working.
0: Right. Yeah. And
2: so, like, and the principal didn't really, um, she didn't really know how to or didn't take the initiative to think about, well, what, what should this teaching body look like? Mm-hmm. What should this, what should the teachers at this school, should they, where should they come from? Where should they live? What kind, of, what kind of definition of teaching should they have? Right. Or are you just going to think about, um, you know, skills worksheets? What kind of skills worksheets do you have? So, like, all of this, like, at the end of the day, and, like, those, so, so from the administration all the way down to the classroom. So even, like, we could decide as a community how we wanted the cafeteria to look where we want the cafeteria to be. We still had to use the New York City Board of Ed that ridiculous food, but we could decide like the kind of chairs we wanted, or you know, even like, and we were getting a new building, how we wanted the building to look. All and you know, and like, and like I said, but at the end of the day, um, there was no, to me, there was no real break from a traditional model,
0: and it was the default. Right, exactly. Do you find the same to be true of? Um... Freshman composition or the college education Absolutely. overall?
2: Absolutely. Um even I mean, in some ways I feel like higher education can be I mean, higher education can almost be worse in terms of like you know, even if you this is this will be my fourth university that I've worked at now. So yeah, so the the last two um, we're trying to redesign the liberal arts curriculum.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so after and one university, after four or five years, curriculum looks the exact same. And so like, you know, there's a committee to design, there's a committee to look at the issue and then to come up with a resolution, mm-hmm. come up with a new plan. And then, you know, and then there's another committee to look at the plan the last committee made. And the curriculum is just the same. There are no new innovative majors or disciplines um and, you know, faculty are so wedded to their disciplines, they're not willing to question. And this is like, this is really that kind of Sylvia Winter imprint,
0: mm-hmm. where she
2: was like, you know, you need to question how these disciplines themselves, as ideological systems, maintain racial violence. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, so like, there's no kind of interrogation of what, what are the social ramifications of the kind of way we think in this field. So it's almost even worse than the high school model so your book,
0: just- your book tries to intervene into that situation um and into um actually the uh, the um, the uh how we understand the formation of um composition and literacy for african american uh uh students in particular or it's a its association with race and black protest. can you tell us what the Particular aims of your book is in regards to um, the profession that you're in.
2: Yeah, in terms of um, in, in terms of composition rhetoric, I feel like the kinds of um, the kinds of arguments and the kind of issues that we're discussing, even if they don't really go very far, um, there's no real kind of intellectual recognition of them having uh, a political and ideological origin. In black '60s protests,
0: mm-hmm.
2: or you know, and and we don't, so there's so there's that, and then and then there's a kind of new kind of you know postmodern cheap kind of thing that wants to say, well, that's all old, and we don't, you know, <laughs> we that has nothing to do with us anyway, right? Right? As if, but all of these, any kind of conversation, the kind of even the kind of conversation that, for instance, asking about like interdisciplinarity. Multidisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity—what um, disciplines do? Those are exactly the kind of conversations that, for instance, Black Studies, at you know, in its most non-bourgeois variant, was after. Mm-hmm. That's what it was—questioning knowledge at Western universities and therefore Western Western world. So that kind of, um, so these kind of moments we don't we don't recognize. And for for me, cop ret is a a really weird kind of space because I don't know how to say this other than just say it but I feel like I've never I don't know any other field that is this lily white and yet this convinced of its radical progressive nature (laughs) it's unfathomable to me that you know I I find I find it incredibly conservative Um, I find it like I said just really white, and yet, um, you know, there's a kind of, there's this is kind of public rhetoric of itself as, if it's not the next Freire, then the next Dewey, mm-hmm. and there's nothing, there's nothing like that mm-hmm. going on, um, and so, you know, even so like like this, the book kind of, it it comes out of when I'm being when I'm first getting immersed into cop bread and I don't really see how I'm supposed to be able to enter. I don't really see a place for for um the kind of teaching that I want to do in schools or in the kind of schooling that I want to see for black and Latino students. I don't really see a space here for that. Um and even in even in those rare moments where for instance I'm in a, in a graduate class, and I'm, you know, I am assigned Keith Gilliard's voices of the self. Um, and it's never any of his new books. It's always voices of the self. Um, or, or someone's name drops, Geneva Smithman. It's completely outside of any context as to the history of this discipline, the history of what's happening mm-hmm. socially in the United States the um particular history of African Americans in higher education. Um and, and a kind of real unwillingness and almost um refusal to look at the specif there is a specificity about African American education in the United States
0: mm-hmm. that you can't
2: get around. Right. And um and so, you know, I mean like in, so I just hear
0: <laughs>
2: just these absurd absurd things and and for me it's a kind of intellectual crisis mm-hmm. um and so you know uh, and it's an intellectual crisis that erases me
0: in, in between your uh interesting and very well uh, researched and um strongly argued chapters you decided to include um teaching interludes that um that showcase your uh, interactions with students, but really spotlight the students and their interactions with language and and, and literacy. Um, why did you choose to uh, include these these vivid moments, these these word pictures with your students?
2: Um, there, I'm, I, there was a kind of. Overall reason behind it, and then they became like a kind of practical reason behind it. I think originally the the original original text, going back to my dissertation, was really every each one of these chapters started with a narrative, Mm -hmm. and um, so for instance, there's a narrative about a student named Rakim who is an activist in his community, and so I took that story, and I um, that opens up one chapter, and then as I talk about student, the history of black student activism in the 50s, or just an overall history from um, the, the, the 40s to 50s, the 60s, um, I keep returning to his rhetoric and his discourse. And that just, you know, so that was the original. The original plan was because I wanted to situate this in classrooms, um, and I wanted to say that, like, teaching really is... It's not just a pedagogical disposition, it's a historical disposition mm-hmm. that that these bodies in our class that how you understand the history of race in higher education and how you live in that how you understand that specificity of african american education um, is compelled a different kind of classroom if you're if that's part of your conscious awareness so that was that was the kind of goal and now in the so in the kind of publication process that just didn't fly, having and I, having the the, na- the narrative in with the history. Who's your? Um,
0: oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep,
2: yeah, yeah, That just didn't. Uh, it just didn't fly. People didn't like people. You know, so it was just so much resistance to that. But I wasn't willing to give up these stories. Mm-hmm. So then I made them. I made them teaching interludes, but in front of in in front of like. So a contemporary story and then the history that illuminates why seeing this student this way is necessary.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Who, so that, that was the compromise I made.
0: Who's your primary audience? Um,
2: when, I was, when I was right, I was really thinking about new, I won't even say new faculty of color in the field. But I was really thinking about color-conscious graduate students who are sitting in graduate classes, wondering what the hell is this. No, hmm. um, you know, and I don't, I don't, I mean, because, and I mean those students who are going to do something beyond color blindness—the um, kind of accepted discourse for how to talk about race. And amongst students, really, in today's iteration of universities, and something other than those kind of those students of color who are who are really trying, to, who are in this for the hustle, like they are the minority representative when they be convenient, um, and then they go back on to doing anyway, doing whatever it is they do. So um, that's really who, because um, and the reason why I settled there, and that being my audience. It's because it's just so I feel like I face so much resistance in the things that I trying, particularly the stuff I was trying to say about my nostril. Mm-hmm. Like that's a
0: no no. Mm-hmm. Still. <laughs> mhm. Exactly. And so well it, it might it might help um the listeners adjust a little bit if um we contextualize um w- what you um just said. I because I I I think that um it's very clear in the book, starting from your first um description of when you were a TA um for freshman composition and you went to the um day long orientation and um how you <laughs> were told not just you but everybody was told that this the this um diverse student body had um uh one goal in mind and that was basically to become participants in middle-class american citizenry and that a radical um slant to a classroom pedagogy by focusing on writers of color or um or interrogating traditional notions of education um were not things that they wanted to encounter in other words this freshman composition orientation was Asking the teachers to replicate and enforce and and teach the status quo, believing that all the students um, were profiling, actually, all the students as wanting that. I think that's very, very key because I think that is pervasive in education overall, but especially when it comes to educating um, college freshmen.
2: And and this was a compositionist who made this announcement. You know, right. so you know, I mean and you know, and so like in, in those early, you know, I'm not really sure what what I thought I was going to what I was going to encounter in this sort of these those first really what I call those first moments as a compositionist. I, I wasn't really sure. Um but, you know, and, and I had come from Seeing this experiment that could have been so amazing at at the high school level, to in my mind really flop because we weren't really offering um, something new and innovative. for mm-hmm. um, so, you know, as this as this high school teacher, and then like so, I literally go from that to sitting in this audience of of this white male compositionist saying that the classroom, and you know, like my classroom was all black and Latino there's not a white student in the room mm-hmm. um, and saying that, you know, your assumption that these students want some kind of a multicultural education or, you know, questioning your status quo is wrong. That's not what they want. Um, and, you know, and, and I was, I was, I was flabbergasted um, that, you know, just not so much as the idea, but just the kind of just strutting of this and presenting this to an audience. Of like this incredibly large audience, and just how how normative, um, how normative that was, and even like I think early in the beginning, I think on my remember I was I was I was called in to you know the the person who was in charge of the, the new people teaching comp um, because I had a quotation from Carter G. Woodson at the top of my <laughs> syllabus. <laughs> so like, you know I got I got spoken to
0: right
2: and so like, and this was this was not someone who and at this point because like I said I have already been a I was a high school teacher
0: and, and basically this is I at the turn taught. of the century so this is not like 1994 yes. this is 1999
2: 2000 exactly 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 and you know and I have been involved in the New York City writing project you know like all and I have done like you know I have been a part of all of these different literacy initiatives so like it's you know, and I was just I was treated like someone who had never heard, who had never heard of pedagogy or writing studies or literacy before, and so like you know the stuff that we were assigned I had already read, you know I already had a master's degree in education, so you know it was it was, you know, it, and, and I was just like, what are we talking about? And even at another point, at you know right really close to that, um, a, a Latino. Upper level administrator announced made a similar one of these kind of opening remarks about, and I, I think I mentioned this, and I can't remember if I mentioned something this now. But I think I do, when I, when I talk about Raquel, um, a student who I call Raquel because, you know, he he said that, you know, we have students at CUNY who where they do rank the class because they don't understand um what education means,
0: mm-hmm.
2: what what a college education means because they wear they do rag. um and and you know, and then he started talking about how his own son was at Dartmouth that would never do such a thing because he knows because he's had the upbringing of of parent with a with a PhD and who's a who's an upper level administrator and so who knows what a college educated person looks like. Mm. And so, you know, it's like this is like, this is really violent. Um, and you know, and then I would look around at the audience and just look around and see, like is anybody else tripping but me? And it would usually be just me.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, at this point, would you mind reading uh, for us from the book?
2: Sure. um, I have a page from the, this might be anticlimactic at this point, but um, it's one of the paragraphs at the very beginning of the book where I try to, um, you know, I, what, what I try to explain, what, why I think this this locus of freshman composition and freshman English is so important, mm-hmm. because that's really how I came. You know, I was it was that classroom that awakened me into being a compositionist, not the other way around. Um, so I'll I'll read that from the beginning. So it's. Because of the combination of its marginalization and sometimes utter disdain inside of English literature departments, its consignment to all entering college students, and its positioning in higher education, freshman English bears the most dynamic intersection of the competing dialogues and institutional politics that frame how literacy and hegemony have been challenged and maintained for the new century and post-secondary institutions. Freshman composition, and thereby composition studies, collided with all of the policies and all of the protests ushered in by the black freedom struggles. So I'm, um, and then I have this kind of list that I will read, read off. Uh, and I think this is really what, really what the, the assignment that I was trying to give myself in this book to make this argument. So um, like I said, composition studies collided with all the policies and protests ushered in by the black freedom struggle. Student protest movements that link the disparate cultures of academia and working class communities of color the national public presence of black student protests at HBCUs and later across formerly whitened universities, certain changes in racial admissions at what had hitherto been all white universities, scapegoating as in being deemed responsible for threatening the liberal arts, rather than an incoming corporate um, an incoming corporate marketing of higher education. Competing definitions of purposes of writing instruction for the non-traditional student, non-traditional quotes, canon wars, and other challenges to what constitutes knowledge and disciplinary boundaries in the academy, rise of new interdisciplinary programs, methodologies, and areas of study, a new body of professors representing racially subordinating groups demanding change not only on the individual campuses but also in their, dis- in their disciplinary professional organization, shifts in content, linguistic registers, and discursive styles, and published academic and creative writing and the proliferation of black audience texts by new black writers. As what might be regarded as its new disciplinarity and professionalization, composition studies after 1960 will not only be forced into dialogue with black freedom struggles, it would also be literally conceived alongside these struggles, regardless of whether or not the field's most esteemed leaders and theorists fully welcomed or understood such conversations. It is this forced dialogue that marks the onset and origins of the issues endemic to the literacy theory that we mark today as a 20 as 21st century phenomena. Um, new technologies that, are, that enable the connectivity of multiple unequal groups across space and time, mass economic migrations of poor, non-standardized English-dominant communities, fought particularly by public schools and public institutions, new demands on literacy acquisition alongside an utter inability to achieve large-scale educational equality. Cultural and racial distance and conflict between the deliverers of educations and the deliveries and racialized massive poverty and inequality on a global scale as a manifestation of removal capitalism. The intellectual and political intersections between social justice and literacy that we have inherited today have origins in a multiracial, multi ethnic civil rights movement that remains the most protracted struggle for equality that the United States has seen.
0: Very nice. <laughs> We uh, talked earlier about the um blatant contradiction in composition rhetoric or composition literacy studies um that uh it it at, on one hand it uh frames itself as being radical and dismantling the status quo and opening up opportunities for diverse uh student bodies um but at the same time it maintains uh, the status quo. Do you think that uh, composition rhetoric or composition literacy studies overall can live up to the rhetoric that it's set up for itself? The radical rhetoric?
2: I think it, um, I think it, I think it could. I feel like, um, I think it could, but not within like our kind of, not within most of our in- institutional structures. Like, I feel like comp rec is living up to. There are, there are moments, for instance, when I'm in the classroom with, with students and uh, bounce and like, you know, bouncing off of them or, you know, like giving them the space where, where I feel like comp rec has this potential um, to, if we start from this, if we start from this energy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: There are moments when I when I when I feel that, but um, so I, I guess I guess I you know I'm still somewhat on the fence about this question because I because I feel like there's a kind of bourgeois professionalization that not not just in terms of rep, but in terms of academic disciplines period, mm-hmm. and so I think when that moves full steam ahead, um, there, there's not much room for. Um, I'm not sure that there's much room for intellectual thought here than hmm. much less radical intellectual thought.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: How do we? Um, so, go ahead.
0: I was going to ask, how do we push at those boundaries? Um, well, of course, your book is one instance of pushing at those boundaries, but how more collectively can we push at those boundaries?
2: I, I think we need to gather in collectives that are actually pushing at the, the boundaries. See, see, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that everyone wants to push at those boundaries. People want to be in. People want to be let in. Hmm. Um, people want to be, like, part of, part of this machine. But, um, so I, you know, not necessarily, because I, I feel like there's some tough questions that, there's some tough questions that have to be asked, and asking those tough questions that's not gonna make you very popular. And um in a kind of age of academia of you know, of commercial academics and celebrity academics, people don't want to talk about the unpopular. Mhm. Or, you know, so so or um I think too that there's there's a you know, I guess to be more generous not always very generous with copyright, but to be more generous, there is a kind of um, – copyright is still marginalized within English literature departments, right? So there's a kind of people feel like they're being attacked um, in the work that they do or they're being devalued in the work that they do in their institutions. Um, And so when when those – and you really see this. You really see this in the kind of discourse in the 80s. Right, so when people come together at at comp, at, you know, like at, for instance, at Four C's, they're not really critical. They're not really critical of one another. Like you see people at four, and you like wonder how the hell are these people friends? I've read this person's
0: <laughs> right, stuff. Right, exactly.
2: I, I don't get it. Like so, so <laughs> this is you know, this is some kind of like you know, family reunion stuff mm-hmm. that I don't. You know what? Like like so. So, in that kind of um and I think like I said, part of that i I, un- I sympathize and I understand that part of that unwillingness to be publicly critical of one another comes from the kind of attacks that people are facing at their universities right. and the devaluing that people are facing at their universities, and they don't want to come to Fort C for instance, and be attacked and criticized some more right but um so but but that's not really healthy.
0: Right. We do need and, a, a, and, a, a culture of, of critique that that is able to um also sustain and maintain um professional and sometimes friendly relations. But not you
2: know, and there's still
0: but not sacrificing the critique for, for friendship.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um and so you know, there there are other things that like that I see other um, organizations doing. Like, for instance, I think, I think it's I think they're called Anthropology Studies Association. And I'm not saying that, you know, they have some kind of hallmark on some radical activities. I don't think they would think that either. But like, you know, um, and I think it's online where they have this commission on race in the discipline. Mm-hmm. And they have people, they have like senior scholars and and some junior scholars talking about what their experiences have been like as people of color in this field and in this department, um, and what kind of, what this field needs to do. And so, like, that kind of, I don't have a sense of where that commission on racism in the field is for our organization, for instance.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I've been stuff. Uh, uh, I've been talking to you for quite, quite some time, and I <laughs> I know that you're very busy and, and have lots of other things to do. So I want to wind down by asking you, uh, what other projects do you have on the burner?
2: Um, the, I, st- I have some short pieces that I'm working on, like basically some article-length pieces that um, are all sort of uh, in process, in progress, some that I'm revising. A lot of it that has to do with... Um, black and Latino students and assessment and black particularly like um, the instances in classrooms and, and um, really interested in at, at this moment particularly Bruce Leonardo's argument about how assessment in the United States right now is a kind of technology and a mechanism for the maintenance of a white nation. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in what what is that looking like in the lives of Black and Latino students in compre right now. So I'm interested in, in that question and a similar kind of question about technology um, and digital literacies. And so, and those are I'm really thinking of those as um, article and pieces. Um, the more extended piece that I'm looking at um, has to do with Black female Black female writers in college classrooms. So it's it's a it's a extensive qualitative study where I've interviewed I've interviewed all of these women. I have essays that they have written over the course of my years teaching college composition and noticing specific themes. Um so this this wasn't a project that I initially intended to to write, but I've gotten such resistance to writing about black women in college classrooms mm-hmm. and complet that I'm
0: going to do it. <laughs> um, for no other reason than that. Very so
2: nice. Like, like, exactly. So that's that's pretty much, those are my five major
0: projects. Like. And readers could find um, some discussion of, of black uh, female students in, uh, in your book um, as well, especially towards the end. And um, so uh, you, you've already been, been doing some of it and quite nicely, I might add. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Carmen Kennard, for talking to us about your new book, Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black Protests, and the New Century in Composition
1: Literacy Studies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello. I hope you've enjoyed this lively interchange with Carmen Kennard about her new book, Vernacular Insurrections, Race, Black protest, and the New Century and Composition Literacy Studies, published by the State University of New York Press, SUNY, this year, 2013. As you have heard, this book challenges the status quo that is upheld alongside a rhetoric of dismantling racial oppression, degradation, and inequality in American schools and universities. I hope you go out and get your copy today.